Hi, well, thank you for having me over here. I am Ana Cabral Gardner. I'm the co-CEO of Sigma Lithium. Uh, Sigma is a Canadian company. We're dedicated to power the next generation of electric vehicles. Those they're going to be built with environmentally sustainable lithium. So what we do, we do uh, high purity, battery grade lithium concentrate. Um, so we are currently in construction. We're fully funded for construction uh, for our lithium project, for our lithium project in Brazil. We're building a green tech state-of-the-art plant. Uh, it utilizes 100% uh, 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 green energy, clean energy, 100% recycled water, 100% dry stacking. And more importantly, it does not utilize harmful chemicals. So we deployed clean tech, green tech in order to process the lithium from the ore into these highly value-added materials uh, through clean tech technology. So uh, Sigma and this project represents one of the largest and highest grade hard rock lithium projects in all of the Americas from North America all the way to uh, Patagonia. And, and since inception, we've been uh, ESG centric because Sigma is controlled by an impact investment fund. So, and that runs the gamut from the ongoing support of local communities to the goal of achieving net zero by 2024. Anna, thank you very much for joining us. Um, yeah, everything about this project is big. Um, 2.2 billion uh, market cap at the moment. Share price has done extremely well over the last uh, three years, um, ramp ramping up nicely. Um, and you are set to be one of the biggest producers globally. So. What I'd like to do, and if it's okay with you, is just kind of get a sense of um, how you built this thing. Because I'm, I'm intrigued about how the management teams uh, think about stuff, how they work, and it gives me sort of some sense of what the future could could hold. Because the difficult thing is when you get big, you got to kind of keep that growth story component going to this. So um, maybe let's go back to the beginning. So when did you come across this project, and you know, and and how did you get a hold of it? Absolutely. Well, this is a well known project, given that it belonged to Sansa Gualia in Australia, which is the big bang of lithium. Sansa Gualia once owned Green Bushes, Piobara, Wajna, and Altura. And this project was co-owned by it and by a family. So the founder uh, in 2012 acquired it from that family uh, that ended up with a project once Sansa Gualia went bankrupt. So they had when they had uh, in the area over 200 ore bodies and the founder and their partner their partner is gp investments which is the local arm of the three g's they've worked for four years to try to understand these 200 ore bodies so they they narrowed it to 33 ore bodies nine out of those were artisanal mines they had been the family had mining artisanally right so fast forward four years, when we got involved on year five of the company, uh, they had these 33 targets and then what we call the nine super targets. And what we told them is, look, we are an impact investment fund. You're going to queue the nine uh, that used to be mines into a path to cash flow. And we're going to blinders down, focus on getting to cash flow as soon as possible. So I think when you asked me how, it was focused because that's what allowed us to weather the storm and the storms came. I mean, we lived through a whole bear market 
market cycle lithium. But because we were focused, so he took the nine previous artisanal mine and killed them in phases. So we started to work on phase one. And that is the part, that is the project that's in construction. But phase one is an industrial area, which allows you to put phase one, phase two, phase three. And then the deposits, they're going to feed each one of those line trains of processing. So nine previous artisanal mines divided in phases. We're now in phase one. We announced recently phase two. So phase one and two combined leads us to an NPV of $5 billion dollars. We're coming on the back of it with phase three. There might be a phase four. Actually, there is a phase four. There is a phase five. So what we've done that was so successful, we phased it as opposed to doing a mega project because it allowed us to think about the capital structure of each phase separately. It allowed us to basically tackle a large area in bite sizes that were digestible to the capital market, to the investors, even during the bear cycle. Right. So focus and this aim to get into cash flow quickly, that was kind of where the the compasses that we followed were. It's, it's kind of interesting to me, Anna, because um, that's a very sort of Australian model. And I know you, you've picked this up from an Australian company. Did you pick up some of their strategy or thinking about how they were going to come about it? Because if I look at Canadian companies, they tend to like to drill, drill, drill until they work at the, the size of this thing. But as you're right. Cost of capital is is important. Uh, the scale of the, the, the capital is 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 important. So you, where, where did you, was this your strategy or was it like say in, inherited? Yeah, because this is the key difference. I mean, we're not a junior mining company. We are a private equity led company. I mean, if you think about my fund, we are still here. But tell we me about, okay, so we'll do that. Yes. Who, who is A10? Yes. How, how was it formed? Well, well, just going back to the whole point, right? Why was the strategy different? It weaves back in. We were not planning to sell Dow throughout. So we wanted to stay in until cash flow. So the goal, so we developed this with a private equity mindset, meaning we're going to go in stages because as we grow value, we would raise capital in tandem with the growth so that we are not going to be as diluted. So we are still with 97% of our position intact. And we just sold down to BlackRock to allow them in. So BlackRock is our second largest shareholder, our core investor. But if we're still here. I haven't sold out unless was to bring in more people, right? So ultimately... It was, it, it, there's a lot of coherence in what we say and what we do. We wanted to do it in bite sizes so that we wouldn't uh, basically jeopardize our own return on invested capital because we, it, the respect for shareholder money comes from the fact that, well, we're the largest shareholder to begin with. So it was this phased in process, right? And again, answering your question. So who is A10? We were an impact investment fund. And we made that investment five years ago on the aftermath of the largest ecological disaster in Brazil, where the project is located. The first tailing dam collapsed and sterilized the whole river. And the mining, metallurgy, anything related to mining became non-investable. These asset classes died for venture capital. And my peers in impact investing decided to run and do impact investing by digital inclusion, fintech. 
we decided to do the exact opposite because of our backgrounds and the partners' backgrounds. I mean, I was a banker for 25 years, 15 of those spent in natural resources. We decided to dive into the problem, meaning we're going to show that these assets are able to be developed uh, in a completely different way. How? With technology and using state-of-the-art environmental techniques and technologies, uh, which at the time weren't even called ESG. The name of this before was Principles of Responsible Investment, which is kind of puzzling because in our view, every investment should be responsible. But uh, PRI was the north, right? So we followed that to the letter. And every decision we made was very consistent with the principles of responsible investment and with this obsession we had with technology. And that's also a very important aspect of our fund. We all have backgrounds in technology uh, and, and we all have backgrounds in economic development. So in addition to being natural resources bankers, we have academic and, and, and educational backgrounds and practical working backgrounds in those areas, which means we have one belief that the resources of the planet are finite, but there's a lot of waste in how these resources are explored. So throwing technology in these areas, they're not sexy, uh, like materials to increase yields is the way to actually better use our resources. And it applies 100% in lithium. If you think about recoveries in lithium, recoveries are very inefficient. A high recovery, which is what we achieve, is like high 60s, right? But you still have a lot of material in the tailings. You look at brines, 40s, right? So with the same resource, you can actually improve yields through technology. And this is not breakthrough, man to the moon kind of technology. This is These are existing pieces of technology that you combine and enhance in order to drive these yields. Right. And therefore, make it environmentally sustainable, more sustainable. Right. And, and given, given the nature of the market that you're playing in, the, the battery, et cetera, um, it, it's it's solving a, a specific problem, so I guess you must be seen to be green or clean, uh, however you want to frame it, uh, to be able to kind of attract the likes of BlackRock, which you did in December for quite a chunk of money. So, um, why did you feel it was the right time to bring them on? Was it just to finance the construction component, or what else are they bringing to the table for you guys? Well, they've been our shareholders since we went public in 2018. Right. So they've been following Sigma for four years. Right. When they decided to increase disproportionately their stake in the capital increase and become our second largest shareholder, the main reason was to amplify our voice and amplify our reach in some of these ESG themes. The thematic in our industry has been quite poor in a way. So we, we became an outlier in the industry and, and we led the industry. And now I'm actually very, very grateful that the industry sort of followed on, on the lead so that, you know, issues such as scope two, which was power, it's moving to be clean. The industry was not using clean power. It was using dirty power. It was using diesel generators. It was using coal power. It was using, uh, uh, natural gas uh, from coal, I'm sorry, gas from coal. So the, the power matrix of the industry was quite dirty. Then in the operations itself, I mean, our operation was designed and, and we we have a demonstration plant to scale on site. 
which was designed and it was costly. There was 15% more capex at a time when money was expensive uh, involved in building that plant to be state of the art. 100% dry stackings, 100% water recirculation, did not use hazardous, hazardous chemicals. So the process is microdensity gravity-based. So these three elements plus clean power put us in a whole different category in terms of environmental sustainability. And, and that was very uh, attractive to, to, to institutional investors such as BlackRock who have exposure to natural resources and who want natural resources to evolve into the 21st century in its uh, mindset. And, and again, how we will do that, environmental state-of-the-art practices and clean tech, green tech, to increase the yields and to improve the extraction methods, right? It's basically increasing efficiency of what we already have because the resources are fine. Right. Okay, so it's so you're talking about you know um, high purity, which, which is good, um, and but you, you're kind of feeding into an industry where prices are going going through the roof. You know that's that's a great benefit to you. You're only producing a concentrate though. Is that is that a is that kind of like short term uh, goal of yours? Do you want to move further downstream? Will you be producing hydroxides? At, was that not part of the model? Oh no, we love where we are. I mean, yeah. we love where we are for a whole host of reasons. We're sitting, we deliver a enhanced concentrate. So the product we deliver is uh, what we call pre-chemical. It's battery grade, high purity concentrate. So the real value creation happens here. We enjoyed margins of 79% operational margins. When you think downstream, chemicals, if you're not integrated, meaning if you're buying your raw materials from folks like us, your margins are 18%. So we're sitting at the holy grail of the entire supply chain and we studied it, right? Now, why, why is that? And why do we like it so much? Because going down chemicals involves a whole level of expertise, which frankly today, and the industry has to be humble to say it, is held by China. They do a, an amazing job in, in, especially in the last two steps of the chemical supply chain, which is ion exchange and crystallization, which is really human skill. So when you think about that, there's more risk and less return. And there's a technology risk there too, because when you build a chemical plant, you choose a cathode technology, which is also in shift, meaning the chemicals, hydroxide, uh, they feed high nickel batteries. The chemical carbonate feeds uh, LFP batteries, which is no nickel. And that's also in flux, as you know, we've been following the main car makers trying to shift away from high nickel back to a non-nickel. And when you make that decision at a chemical level, you're marrying yourself to a technological area where there's quite a lot of change and it's very dynamic. So here we are sitting in pre-chemicals. We call what we do pre-chemicals because it's high purity, it's battery grade. So it's teeing up the chemical and we don't have any technology risk in the sense that we're not marrying to any decisions that are out of our control downstream. What's most industry interesting about where we are and we like it so much is that because we do it so well, I mean, we enjoy this pre-chemical status because our material drives cash flow, meaning 
a client like downstream, you need 20 to 30% less of this material because of its purity and its coarseness, hence the pre-chemical status to deliver the same tonnage of the chemical. So we are enablers to more efficiencies. So this is why we sit at such a great vantage point uh, chemically and therefore commercially. I love the fact that you are delighted to defend that position because a lot of the conversations we have with lithium companies is them saying, we're going to produce a concentrate, but we will definitely be moving downstream because they're hoping for a re-rate if they do. What they, what they are not owning is the fact that if you can get it right in the concentrate space, there's every reason to be very happy happy to stay there. So that, I, thought, I thought it was quite interesting because we had the ex-chairman of, I, I think, Albemarle come on a couple of months ago and talk about a lot of the lithium developers talking a technology game which they're not equipped to deliver, whether that be DLE or, or, or otherwise, because it's a very technical pro- product in, in, uh, that you're, you're producing. So um, I like that. But I, I, the only reason I mention that is because I want, here's, here's the actual question I, I called you up to talk about, right? Which is your valuation. Okay. Most people look at it and go 2.2 billion. You guys have done quite well in, 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 in five years. Well, well done. But it seems to me looking at some basic peer analysis, you can measure on any, any value you want. You're not getting the love and attention that I think perhaps you might be due. And I'm trying to wonder why, right? And normally that's going to be jurisdictional risk, technology risk, offtake or contracts or, um, you know, your ability to create, you know, margin, because, you know, some, some of these projects are very marginal. You were talking a game of high margin. Um, the exchange that you sit on, lots, lots of reasons why people may be discounting you. I mean, I, I, how, do, how do you feel about it? I mean, how, how do you think people should be looking at you? Well, we had a liquidity discount that was quite punitive because there was no stock, right, for a long time. Up until we listed in the NASDAQ in September. So we are, from an investor's perspective, a newly available stock. Up until we went to the NASDAQ, the stock traded like $200,000 a day. That's basically nothing, right? So going to the NASDAQ, you can see, I mean, we started to be rewarded for our execution. We were flat. We, were, we went to the NASDAQ almost at IPO prices. Right. So as we went to the Nasdaq and you started to see a third in the shareholder base from the very early guys in Canada from 2017 and 18 into the folks that will look at the re-rating. And I'll talk about it now. That's when we started to see, you know, the execution being factored into the share price. And there's a long way to go. Uh, and, And why is that? Because and these are numbers that I can talk about because the official 43101 numbers. Our 43101 EBITDA combined, and that's done at a $2,000 a ton, which is half of the current market. It's $730 million of EBITDA. If, we mar- if our market cap is like $2 billion, it means we're trading at like three times EBITDA. So that's no matter what sector you look at, a company three times EBITDA is, is attractively valued. So when you, when you look at the metrics that us private equity investors like to look at, which is kind of my goal, is like cash flow. Cash flow will re-rate the company. We are confident that the moment we do first shipment, 
first first shipment will be at current market prices, which are more like 5,000, right? There will be a double access, double re-rating because when you think about what we're doing, well, we are in a great jurisdiction. I mean, there are companies in Africa that have higher valuations than us. Brazil is probably one of the most solid jurisdictions in mining in the world. Half of the world's metals come from Brazil. The other half comes from Australia and Canada. So it's there. It's investable. It's been investable for you know decades. Then you have, so it's not jurisdictional risk. When we look at execution risk, we're fully funded, solid investor base, BlackRock, second largest investor. The investor list reads like a who's who in investor registered. So fully funded to construction. So construction risk is, is extremely well managed because we spent a whole year in detail engineering, which again, typically junior companies don't do. We did that because we are, again, private equity investors. We were in a hurry, but we were not willing to sacrifice uh, uh, risk for rush, right? So we were in, not in a rush. We were in a hurry, which are different things. So we, we spent time de-risking construction. So in our view, the one explanation for the asymmetry, and there was a major price asymmetry and valuation asymmetry, was liquidity, which is the gap we're closing, talking, doing this outreach of awareness, talking to folks like you guys, being more present in conferences, because we had our blinders down. We were so focused. You know how racing horses do? We are like blinders down, executing, executing. So we're now, we feel that, you know, construction is on rails. We delivered phase two. Uh, we're publishing phase three shortly. So uh, my co-CEO lives at the project. So he's there, you know, running that, that, that construction. But then it allowed me time. It released me some time to go out and do this investor awareness work. So, so, so talk, talk to me, give me a little bit more technically with regards to the, the, the product, the concentrate. So um, clearly funded through to, you know, final construction, and um, which, which is great. Um, who are you selling this to? BlackRock um, being part of this leads me to believe that it's, it's got to be North America, surely. Um, yet China's the big, the big uh, eight hundred pound gorilla in the room here. So, uh, how, how do the, your future finances look, and you know, where does that money come from? Well, we, we're being funded by the equity capital market. So this this is so we don't have clients as funders. That's an important point. Mm -hmm. So the shareholder register is clean. It only has financial investors. That's one. Now, the commercial strategy, we're completely agnostic. We sell to everyone. I mean, this is the advantage of having an asset in Brazil. It's a neutral place. We sell to everyone. What we've done, though, we aligned ourselves with the biggest players. So the one public client we like to talk about is LG. LG is, is what we call the, the unanimity in the sector because they deliver... The, their batteries to Ferrari, to Volkswagen, and then to Tesla, to GM. They deliver to Tesla in China. They have three planned facilities in China. They have two joint ventures planned in North America, very famously, one with Stellantis and another with GM. So they're this kind of, there's an alignment with us. We're here to make the world greener and more sustainable. And we will go whatever it takes. We will associate ourselves with the best in class to do it, right? Across the spectrum. The market's now half China, half Europe. 
the U.S. is developing as a third force. We see eventually the market becoming tripartite, U.S., Europe, and in China. So we're sitting here with this asset in Brazil completely neutral. And, and we, love, uh, we love that fact because we see competencies emerging from the various jurisdictions, right? You have the chemical prowess coming from China. You have, you know, the growth and the, the awareness uh, of the consumer for sustainability issues coming from Europe. Europe's driving all of this. Europe's driving the, 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 the sustainability in the supply chain. So each of these markets brings something to the table, I guess. So you're agnostic in terms of who you sell this totally. to. Totally. But um, here's the bit, because I, I want to learn, right? I want to learn as an investor you know, what, what to look for next time around, right? Which is how have you managed to get this to a point where you're fully funded through, through construction Without how, without putting offtake agreements in place, or you know, or, or sell, selling down to a strategic uh, player, you know, a chunk of your company, because a lot of the um, companies which are trying to move through from pilot plant to demonstration plant to commercial plant, they've ne they've needed the help of industry to kind of move forward technically, but also financially. So, how have you avoided that, or have you avoided that? Well, we have offtake agreements. We right. had to put the agreements in place. To what, could, what percentage need, of of your product? Uh, we got well. It's if you if you were to add it up, up to half of the phases okay. to be committed, and we have optional volumes at our options. So. We have that that flexibility to play with. So it's and this was this was the art. Now, what allowed us to do that was the capital. We we are well funded to begin with because of the fund. So and and, and this was more evident in 2019 when capital was nil. So we actually wrote a check for the company and we didn't do it as a capital increase. We lent it below market rates. Mm -hmm. which earned us the huge respect of our shareholders because it showed that we were willing to put more money where our beliefs were. So that precluded us from getting funding from strategics, precluded us from getting funded from offtake players, but we have the offtake. So we have this offtake with LG. But, but what percentage does that represent? Though? They're not 50%. Are they? It was, a, it was half of phase one, right? It was okay. 100,000 100, tons. And then it, it has another 50,000 tons of uh, optional volume. So then we also had Mitsui as a trading partner. They were commercial partner and they move materials, you know, with a very big ease. So we, we've aligned ourselves with the best, basically. So by aligning ourselves with the best, we knew that, you know, we would have the battery make. And this was a key thing because of the quality of the material. And because we bring in this 20 to 30% productivity boost that is not priced in, in, a, in a quote, we actually went over and jumped two boxes in the supply chain. We jumped chemicals and we jumped cathodes straight into battery makers, straight into end users. And the end users buy the material and they procure the the chemical uh, conversion and the cathode making in the case of LG is the same house, and therefore, and therefore, what is interesting is that as a result we gained more commercial power. We were able to share the gains because the further downstream you are, the more focused they are with the 
uh, unit securement versus nickel and diming, you know, the product, right? Right. Okay. So th th this is what you, you, you've, you've talked in the past about the, um, the, the take or pay contract price being linked to the lithium hydroxide price, right? Price, right. And I think that's from October last year or whatever. Um, so that, that's, that's quite, that's, is that normal in this environment? Because people, because when we talked to battery manufacturers in the past, they, they're like, we just need to secure our supply. You know, um, the market's moving quicker than we thought. The numbers are bigger than we thought. And, you know, the important thing is just securing supply of the right quality um, product. So to say, they don't want to nickel and dime you. So you, did, you were able to take advantage of that situation, I guess. That's what we're saying. That's exactly. Because when you look at the battery makers, they're, they're building these gigafactories. And when they look upstream from where they are, they don't see the volumes coming from upstream. So there's been now a focus on how can we get the best product into our, into our fold so that we can actually ensure that we're gonna get it, can, that we're gonna get the chemicals to the right certification, that we're gonna get, and they can't take any risk there. This is my point about us staying away from chemicals. They procure with their tollers, but with our material, which is an enabler, which is a whole subtlety because the fact we deliver this material so pure and so coarse allows the battery makers more choices on tolling because they're able to deliver this to tollers that can deliver certifications, that can deliver in-specification material, but they didn't have access to great input to the great pre-chemical in order to do so. So given great material, they can deliver the certified chemicals. And that's what we do. That's the alliance with the battery makers. It works beautifully. And so we, we actually enable the battery makers to have more choice to their advantage and, and more certainty in executing their investment plans, which are, as you know, quite substantial. Well, absolutely. And the, 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 one of the other things that came out of these conversations with the battery manufacturers is saying that um, we're not actually quite sure or, or confident enough to actually understand a lot of the development stories are talking a good game about what they're going to be able to do. And maybe this you know, re reflects on the conversation from the ex-chairman of, of Albermal as well, which is the daily, some of these daily um, stories, some of these um, development stories are not actually going to get they're not going to get to a point where they can produce the product they say they can in the time frame that they say they can, if indeed they do. So it, not all developers will get into production, I guess is what I'm saying. So um, with, with, with that in mind, um, what do you think is going to happen with, with, with pricing? And, and that's a difficult game to get into, trying to forecast well, pricing. I, I'm but. happy to answer that. I think the workhorses of the industry are the majors. And, and Sigma, fortunately, is in a position, and that's how we call it, we're the next major. And, and the majors are a very sort of select group of very large product, very large producers that can scale up, right? So, so the majors are known, meaning you got Albermall, you have SQM, there's Pilbara, uh, major players, right? And then you have, you know, and then you have the, non-integrated, so you got Gongfeng coming in there, part integrated with mineral resources, and then you have Sigma, like delivering, not a chemical producer, delivering battery grade, just like Pilbara, delivering battery grade uh, pre-chemical, right? 
ultra impurity. And then you have the balance of it, right? So all the other players, but these majors, super majors, we are the workhorses of the industry. So then you have the new players emerging. And then the question is, can in this cycle, that's it, is basically Sigma, Lithium Americas and core in different scales, in different speeds. So the question with the developers is, okay, you're going for the next cycle. You're gonna produce in 25, 26, 27. Will you get funded? Are your capital plans executable with the current market sentiment? Can you get that? Is it realistic? Is it focused? So I look at these things, I'm an investor. I'm actually a professional private equity investor. So when I look at this, I have an investor's eye of how realistic, time to market, time to cash flow. That's what we care about. Wow. When are you going to start turning out cash flow? And is your capex to get there realistic? And is your product realistic to the skill set of the management? So these are the discussions that, that we think through internally when we look at an investable opportunity. So when you talk to a group of investors, it's always the same question, right? Does this team have the skill? Is there a strategy to, especially in the current environment where capital is going to become scarce again or more expensive again, is this focus? like a Because like we developed this in a bear market, straight line to cash flow. That's blinders down, cash flow, obsession, that one asset. That's the, These are the questions. I can't answer them. Each, each company has its own micro you know, realities, but the bigger questions are those for investors. That's how that's how our investment process is. Literally, the definition of time is money. Um, and I, I, I really like that. And I guess what I'm um, the other kind of, but I hark back to from my banking days is when we were looking at funding projects like this, and even now running the family office, is we we want to understand what the what the what the market's going to do. Because right now we're kind of people would argue the beginning of this kind of super cycle, the EV. Revolution has kind of you know ch changed the focus and narrative for sure. Um, but I want to know that the pricing is sustainable. Um, and if I am going to invest in any of these other developers, I've got to believe that they've got a they've got a chance of surviving. However, if the majors, which you, you are soon to be one, are able to turn the tap on and increase um, supply into the market, that does start to affect that critical tension between pricing and, and supply in the market. So um, do, you, do, you, do you, are you concerned at all about the kind of fluid position of um, lithium at the moment, the various lithium products in the market? Well, it all depends. It's not a one size fits all because there's a cost curve and that happens in every commodity, right? As you know. So you always want to be from the middle to the low end of the cost curve. If you're sitting from the middle to the high end of the cost curve, you have a more fragile position. So when you think about where Sigma is, I mean, we are at the lowest quartile of the cost curve. This is one of the lowest cost projects in the world for either chemical. No matter what they do with the battery grade concentrate, carbonate or hydroxide, we can you know, be right there after the gods, which are the Atacama and green bushes, right? Why? Because we, we were developed during the bear cycle, when the product the, the product price was $500 per ton, it's now 5,000. So we had to show we stood on our own two legs at $500 a ton, and we did. Uh, so that is the key. Now, 
how many projects like these are there? Well, not many. So you move up the cost, the cost curve. And, and that was my belief when we stayed on course in 19, when we put our own money here. If this is it, well, there's no EVs because there, there's not going to be enough products. There aren't enough assets that can stand on their two legs at these price levels. So the billion dollar question is, what is the long-term price levels? And then the experts have their views, right? And that long-term price level needs to converse with two things, with the availability of assets and production increases from majors that fall from the middle to the low end of the cost curve, one, and with the growth plans of the downstream industry, meaning are they putting out gigafactories and announcements that can be supplied with this amounts of materials coming from the middle of the cost curve to the low end of the cost curve? Or do we have to push the the do we have to push sort of the, 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 the cost curve a bit further towards the high end of the cost curve? So this is the question for let's say 24, 25, 26, when everyone is concerned that the prices will taper. Right now, it's all the way to the end of the cost curve. Every single project with a gram of lithium out there is being thrown into the market at these levels. It's $80,000 a ton of hydroxide, $6,000 a ton of, pre, of, of lithium concentrate and counting, but this isn't gonna last. And the question is how long it's not gonna last. This can't be reality, but What's the reality? Well, depends. Depends on the mound uptake, the battery gigafactory, you know, investment rollout plan, uh, investor uptake of the domestic of the electric cars, and is there a coherence that percolates throughout the supply chain between these two, you know, uh, 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 these two. Uh, uh, these two elements, right? So I, I, I agree with the, uh, like all of that. I, I, I think I think um, you know we've got to be we as investors have got to be realistic, and you know the, the market has a way of um, find, finding its level, right? So I'm mean, sort of intrigued as to what, what you thought about where we're what what would be driving that pricing and and what are the levers involved. So I've enjoyed that. Um, just just with regards to um, your driver, which is. Time to cash flow, right? Time to cash flow. So give us a, give us a sense of that because we maybe I'm you know, used to have a lot of your time today, and I think there's so many other things I want to talk about, like COP26 and the ESG more broadly, and some of this clean text uh, that you've employed, but maybe for another time. Um, but time to cash flow. What are you aiming for for in terms of phase one, and what's the kind of ramp up uh, to phase two look like? Oh no, we're we're there, right? Basically, we're in construction. But we're money. Show me the money, Anna. <laughs> uh, yes, we're we're there. We're we're obsessed. Basically, we're fully funded. We're equity funded, which has enormous advantages, mainly with the current state of supply chain disarray. I mean, we behave like a major. In other words, we prepay our suppliers. We we put money to ensure timeliness of deliveries. So even in an appended supply chain, I mean, you got Shanghai in lockdown. They're parts of every manufactured good, even though you're not buying from China or you're buying parts from China. China is in, it's it's integrated to supply chains in the most surprising ways, and everyone's finding out now. 
So we're trying to we're trying to do our best in buying our way into supply timeliness by using that cash funding. This is significant in this market. So, so far, so good. We've been able to maintain our commissioning timeline of December year end, uh, which is switches on. Then the first quarter is when we commission. So we'll have lithium on the ground throughout first quarter and we'll ship. So ultimately, I mean, we're there. It's first quarter 23 product ramp. Again, simplicity of the technology, simple. So the DMS is a quick ramp because I'm ramping six processes, not 14 processes. So quick ramp, quick to market, three months ramp up, perhaps shorter. Phase two starts getting built the moment I switch on phase one. So phase one for starts first quarter 23, the production. Phase two starts the construction there. So then phase two goes on streaming 24. So phase one and phase two, quick succession, broken down into two, 23, phase one, 24, phase two. And, and we're working very fast on a phase three, which we already announced and discussed. So the the objective now is to is to be able to deliver as much as we can of this sustainable lithium throughout these next three years.